We are up to the 23rd chapter of the Tadya. It's been a few weeks, so I'll start with filling you in as best as I can. In the title page of the Tadya, the author said that he is going to explain how it is very dear for us to come close to Hashem with our mouth, with our heart, to do it. In a long, short way. And in chapters 1 through 8, the author, the Rebbe, explained the two souls. The animal soul and the godly soul. The godly soul is that part of us, that godliness within us that makes us want to connect to Hashem. And the animal soul is that part within us that um, is more self-centered, more existential. We're not talking about a good and bad inclination, but rather two general drives within us towards maybe selflessness or somewhat of uh, selfishness. And he described how there's a battle between these two souls who is going to direct us in how we conduct our lives. And he described how the tzaddik is somebody who is completely controlled by his godly soul, meaning not only does he do the right thing, but he only desires the right thing. Far and few. The Rasha is somebody who allows his animal to control not only how he feels, but also how he acts. Which means not only does he desire to do the wrong thing, but he sometimes falls when he does the wrong thing. And the Bainani is in the middle. He is like a tzaddik in that he ensures that he doesn't actually do the wrong thing. But he's like the Rasha in that he very much desires the wrong thing. So he's in this in-between space. And the, the Tanya is called the Book of Bainanim. It's really addressing the Bainanim. It's addressing that in-between. It's really helping us understand how we can, at the very least, be Bainanim and strive to be Tzadikim. Which means that if we're not going to be able to change how we feel, at least to help us change how we act. And a big question that I get asked, and really it's a recurring theme throughout the Tanya, is what's the main thing? Is the main thing action or is the main thing feeling? So this question keeps being addressed throughout the Tanya. At the end of chapter 17, Alter ever concluded how feelings per se are not the objective. And therefore, if we look at the title page, it says that the Alter is going to explain how it is near, very near to us, the words of Moses, in our mouth and in our heart to do it. He doesn't say in our mouth and in our heart and in action, but rather he says in our mouth and in our heart to do it, which means that really the reason why feelings are important is because of the effect they have on our actions. So, I guess to answer the question, what's more important, feeling or actions? The Tanya's perspective is actions. But actions need feelings. Why do actions need feelings? Because if you don't have a feeling, then you're just not going to do it. Yes, there is a concept in Chassidus called Kabbalah's Al, which is somewhat of a, um, a, a disciplined adherence to the law, that whether you like it or not, this is what you do. That itself is hard to achieve. In other words, we all want to do the right thing. 
but we need to find the strength to actually do it. So the action is what matters most, but that action really needs motivation. So what will motivate good action? Well, in other schools of thought, sometimes there's an emphasis of reward and punishment or fringe benefits. Learn Gemara because then you're going to have such a smart head that you'll be able to crack amazing deals in business. It's wonderful because you'll learn Gemara and you'll, you'll do well in business. But obviously that's a fringe benefit. That's not why you're learning Gemara. Hasidus tries to get to the core of where there's, a really in, there's an intrinsic motivation to the action, where there's, there's value in the action itself. And here we come to feeling. It comes to an appreciation of the action. If you have an appreciation of the action, then you'll want to do the action for the action itself. So how do we develop a feeling that will motivate us to action? If you spaced out, here's another point to join in. How do we develop a feeling that will motivate us to action? In the first 17 chapters, or the 17th chapter summed up the first 17 chapters by saying that when we study about the greatness of Hashem, there's no doubt about it that this will develop some, for, some, some form of a feeling within our hearts for Hashem, and that will motivate us to action. And in chapters 18 through 25, which we are currently studying, the al Rebbe says that there's another way to develop feelings. I'll correct <laughs> myself. There's another way to have feelings. Still not good. There's another way, another type of feeling that will motivate our actions. And what is that? It's revealing the natural feelings that we all have for Hashem. And in chapters 18 and 19, he described how every Jew has a natural, hidden love for Hashem, where we want to just be connected with Hashem. And the nature of this love is like a child that wants to do things for their parents, even if it's at the expense of the child, which means that the Neshama wants to be one with Hashem, even if it means it'll lose its own identity. In summary, every Jew naturally has a love for Hashem. And he says, even the sinners of Israel, when they've been challenged to convert, have been willing to go through the worst of tortures rather than give up their Judaism. Why is that? Because they have a natural love for Hashem. And this natural love can motivate us with every mitzvah that we do. But how? It's very nice when it's um, in the extreme situation, when it's dramatized, when it's in the media, and this is a uh, critical moment, and we stand up and we make our people proud. But on a regular Monday morning, when we've got lots of responsibilities and lots of challenges, and it's not easy to be doing the right thing, how then do we discover the natural love that we have for Hashem to the point that this love will motivate us to action? This question is what we're addressing at the moment in the time. So that was the intro. So, how do we reveal the natural love? And the author says, in order to reveal the natural love, we actually do need to go to some deep um, uh, theology. Which naturally begs the question, because we said, this, well, this is for the person that's not the super scholar, that's not able to have a deep study that will be able to develop feelings of love. We're talking about just revealing a natural love. But it seems that although this is a deep theology, this is a, de a deep perspective, it's still a perspective that we could all encounter in different ways. 
So this is not so much about sitting down and studying for hours about the greatness of Hashem. Rather, it is about continuously reminding us of a different reality that we live in. I mentioned last week or the week before that as a teenager, I was in Yeshiva and I was trying to understand the existence of the world. And the way I like to put it back then was that you could debate, does the world exist or doesn't it exist? But the answer is that the world does exist. How do we know? Because it says in the first words of the Torah, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So the Torah says that God created the world that exists. But it exists differently to the way we think it does. And so our version of the world or our perspective of the world is maybe not is what's really existing. So the world is real, it does exist. But the nature of this world is different from the way that we think it is. What does this mean? So just to summarize these deep concepts, we went on a bit of a meditation and we spoke about if you were to think about the infinite distance between a person's single words and their innermost feelings, what's on their mind and heart. In summary, we said that one word is a fraction, is minute, is insignificant to what a person is able to speak. What you actually say is insignificant to what you're able to say. And what you're able to say is insignificant to how you're feeling. So much of what you're feeling, you can't even, you're not even able to put into words. Oh, sorry, it's insignificant to what you're thinking. So much of what you're thinking, you can't put into words. But even thoughts, we said, also have words. They are the words of thoughts. It's a different type of words. And our thoughts are insignificant to how we're feeling. Sometimes how we're feeling, when it's a deep feeling, we can't even put it into thoughts. And how we're feeling is sometimes insignificant to a mind perspective that doesn't even, can't even be put into feeling just yet. In summary, pardon? Into words. Into feeling even. So basically, mind, heart, thoughts, ability to speak, and then speech. Those are all the steps that a person goes through until he actually says a word. Sometimes it all happens on that piece. Mind, heart, thoughts, ability to speak, and actual speech. Ability and actual. Yeah, the ability to talk and the actu- actually speaking. Must yeah. the speech, does the speech always go in this? Area? I don't know. I mean, subway, but I'm not sure. That's not the point over here. The point is that if we were to compare a single spoken word mm-hmm. to the person's um, ability to speak, and then above that, his feelings and above, sorry, above that his thoughts and above that his feelings and above that what's on his mind on a subconscious level. So one spoken word in no way reflects what's going on in the depths of his mind and heart. Why is this relevant for us? Because God created the world through speech. And so what that means is that the entire world is even more, and that's still using a reference, but I'll just use it for now for the lack of a better approach, the, the, the world, the entire world around us with the billions of creations and creatures and people and opinions that exist, planets and stars, they are all more insignificant before God than a single spoken word is that we speak to our inner feelings. 
Which means that, does the world exist? Yes, he created it. But how significant is it? Completely insignificant, yes. You have a question? No, thinking about it. Now, obviously, that raises the question, does that mean that we don't matter? And uh, how can you just, you know, do away with the big world just like that? And the answer to that is maybe it's about what is matter? What is matter? You say, does that mean that I don't matter? What is matter? In other words, what is the anchor? What is the true definition of value? So if you say that the world is valuable because it is this big and this wide, and this person is valuable because they have this amount of money or this amount of power or influence, if we value it from that perspective, so we're actually, um, we're not appreciating how to define value because we're thinking that value is by, you know, for a little kid, I often give the analogy, two kids here, the parents are arguing which president is bigger. Was it Nelson Mandela or was it Ramaphosa? Um, uh, and uh, the kids say, I don't understand. Nelson Mandela was like a fraction of the size of Ramaphosa. Just put the two next to each other. Ramaphosa is like a head taller. The children are right. He is a head taller, I think. But um, that's not what we mean when we say which one is bigger. So, like, how do you define bigger? Obviously, we're not talking about how many kilos they weigh. We're talking about their influence. So, at a much deeper level, when we look at the world around us and it seems like it's so big and it's so overwhelming and it's so powerful and it's gone with sugar and what's going to be and global warming, anti-Semitism, at least I can tell you the best place for you to be is in South Africa. That's just a, just a side, uh, uh, what do you call it? Yeah. <laughs> Because uh, anywhere else you go, you're dealing with uh, only more and more sorrows. So you, you're very blessed to be in this country. But you look at the world around us and you say it's so big and it's gone with sugar and what's going to be. Um, and then you stop and you say, wait a minute. What is true power? What is true reality? What is true existence? God is real. Everything else that exists was a created entity that has a start and will have an end. Even the scientists understand that the world had to have had a start. So where did it start? It was the Big Bang. Okay, what started the Big Bang? And then we'll keep going backwards, meaning that everything finite has to have a beginning. So it's finite. It has a beginning. So it's, it hasn't always been here. And it might not always be here in the future. That's the world. God is different. God, by definition, is God, which means he's infinite. He always was. He always will be. He is the true reality of existence. So it's not that we try to knock away the world and say, hey, it's a big deal, it doesn't matter. We're rather reframing and getting a different perspective of, of what is reality and what's real. And the fact of the matter is that God is infinite and he's as real as it gets. And the world that he created is relative to God, completely insignificant before him. So as I said, these are deep concepts, but they're very much a perspective, a reality that we could try to live in. Something 
why is there is there a reason why God directs bad things as opposed to only good things? So we discussed this last week, and we said the simple answer is free choice. But we'll come we'll come back to that. So this, I guess, is the first. Yes. Sorry, how does this relate to revealing the love? The single spoken word. That oh, because God said, "Let there be light." And there was light. So maybe it wasn't one word; it was ten utterances. But whether it's one word or ten words, just as ten words that we say take so little of our energy and reflect so little of our abilities, so to the entire world, which is powered by the speech of God takes so little of God's energy and is so insignificant before God's true power. We were discussing how insignificant the world is per se before God. I understand that, but I'm, how does the word, the spoken word, I'm, I just, can you say it again? Sure. Sorry. But our spoken word, because it can't only be God's It's an analogy. So... When we did this exercise a few weeks ago, I said, everybody think of one word in the room. And then if you were to tell me about what your Sunday was like yesterday, take that word and put it into a sentence and see how it describes what your Sunday was like. And then I said, okay, if you're going out for coffee with somebody for two hours and you included that one sentence, how much of that sentence would, how much would that sentence reflect of the two hours of talking that you'll have? And then when you went home and you'll think about what you didn't tell the other person, and you'll think about how much those two hours of talk reflected from what you were thinking, and then what you're thinking, feeling. Basically, we just actually spelled out the exercise of us human beings, we could relate to how insignificant a few spoken words are to what's going on in our, in our hearts. And we're saying that um, South Africa is actually not powered by ESCOM. It's powered by God. <laughs> and I mean, ESCOM is having a lot of difficulty. They, they, their system's breaking down. They, they, they can't put out enough energy. Hashem, it's, it's even easier, believe it or not, um, so to speak. I'm just obviously joking around. I shouldn't joke about such things. But um, God is powering the whole planet Earth. And the amount of kilowatts that God needs to use in order to power planet Earth is like, it's not even like one watt relative to billions of kilowatts. It's, it's just completely insignificant. So the objective of this exercise is for us to realize how insignificant our world perspective reality is relative to the true reality of God. So we use an analogy of just as a person, one spoken word is so insignificant to everything that's going on in their hearts, so is a few spoken words that are, words that are powering planet Earth so insignificant before God. But what did you say? Our perspective of the world is so insignificant compared to God. But if we tune into the real value of the world, a different perspective, uh, then that is much more significant compared uh, to God. Let's move on to the next point to answer your question of the Tanya, the next building block in this perspective. Building block number two and maybe building block number three will be what you're discussing. Maybe building block number four will be moving on to new content for today. We'll see how this goes. So, so just yes. before we, we move Proceed. on, should we be training ourselves as to how our thought process should go and our spoken word as well? We should be much more careful of 
how we think and how we speak. It sounds wonderful, but that's not the point of it here. I think we also got to be easy on ourselves. <laughs> so that's up for debate. I think we, we are who we are. And obviously we can try to say a better word, and to think a better thought. But the fact that it will remain that one word is so insignificant to ability to speak. And, and we'll utilize each thing in their ability. Don't worry, there are other places in Chassidus where it describes the power of speech. And there we speak about how although speech is so much less than what you're thinking, specifically when you speak it, you're able to give clarity on what you couldn't have when you're thinking. So speech is wonderful as well. And sometimes it's good to talk a lot. Um, it's healthy. We're using this purely as an analogy to help us understand how insignificant the world is before God. But then it's only God's word that is significant. Even God's word is insignificant before God himself. Basically, it's only God that's significant, correct? But, but, but the world is completely insignificant before him. This was the discussion of chapter 20, I believe. Chapter 21 continued on the analogy of a spoken word. And chapter 21 said that when us humans speak, once we speak, the word becomes separated from us. So you could just be talking and you could completely forget what you said, but somebody can be listening and that could have an impact on them for the rest of their life, talking about the power of words. So why is that? Because for us, for me, it was insignificant, but for the sec other person that was separated from me, he just heard the word. The word was shared, that voice note is out, or whatever it is, and... Uh, and then now that becomes a huge reality. So the next point, the author of the Tanya makes in chapter 21, is that here there's a, 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 the analogy falls short. When we speak, we speak to something outside of us. But really God is everywhere. Which means that God's spoken world that is powering planet Earth with billions of kilowatts remains within God. Which means God is really everywhere. So therefore, the world remains insignificant before God, even after it's created. Then we move on to the next point. But, he says, then we spoke about the concept called Tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is that Hashem hid himself, contracted himself, so that we don't see him. And so therefore, although God is really everywhere, and so um, the spoken word is insignificant before the speaker, from our perspective, we just see the words. We don't see the speaker. We don't see God. We just see the world that he's produced. So he basically has hidden from us the insignificance of the spoken word before its maker. We just see the spoken word. That's all that we know about. We have no idea how insignificant that is before, before God himself. It's something we can study about. This is Tzimtzum in very short. And sometimes we said that the extent of Tzimtzum is so powerful that the created entity that is actually being um, vivified and, and given life by God actually doesn't know of his source of life and denies God's existence. Which goes back to your question, why would God create bad things? Right? So the definition of creating bad things from a Hasidic perspective is that God allowed himself to be so hidden that the created entity thinks that it is independent of him, that it exists in its own right, and therefore is on its own mission, undermines God's mission. Why did God do that? It's a big question. The simple answer is free choice. 
or more than that, to give us the ability to uncover the truth, to challenge us to remove, the, open the curtains, and to really to shine light on who's really running the show. Okay, now to answer your question, Bobby, on from God's perspective, does the world exist? Yes, the world that we think exists independent of God is completely insignificant, but God did create it after all. So if he created it, it doesn't matter. Is it significant? So now we come to the next important discussion, which we also spoke about, which is, and it's worth learning about again and again, so it's good that we go over these things, and that is that a person has their inner desire and their external will. Inner will and outer will. In general, that's how uh, um, uh, a person operates. What does that mean? If you have a business and you want to make a lot of money, and so you get involved in a venture, so you may not really care about that venture, but you just want the money. So in such a scenario, the money is your inner will, and the activities that you're doing are just things that you're doing in order to make that money. Let's turn it around. That's if you're trying to make money and you're doing whatever it takes. You're doing things that you don't really care about in order to make money. Flip side. If you have a startup company, so here's an analogy. You have a startup company, I was just speaking to somebody recently that was is in, this, in this situation, where they are, and he's, he's been working on a project for a long time, and I'm wondering, uh, How's he, how does he keep going? If it's, he's just working on a startup company, it means it's still starting up. So if it's still starting up, it's not producing any funds. So uh, how's he living? So no, I understand. He explained to me that the investors in the startup have allocated on however many, maybe it's a year at a time or two years at a time of a salary that they're investing basically in him. So he's getting a monthly salary to spend time on developing the startup. So, they're spending hundreds of thousands of rands. Why? Because they want a certain product. So they're basically giving him and his family food to eat and drink so he can spend all day trying to make this product work. And then they believe that once this product does work, that it'll have returns. It'll give, many, much, give back much more than the hundreds of thousands of rands that they're investing in the, investing in the product. The moments, if God forbids, they would see that this product is not going to work, then obviously immediately the funding will stop. So here you have a guy, and then don't worry, he's got other job offers, and he'll be worried about it, he'll move on, and uh, life will be, he'll get another job, and it'll do well. It's a great experience, just uh, if, we, if we're talking practical. But the fact of the matter is that right now, hundreds of thousands of brands are being poured, are poured into him, for him to support his whole family, to have cars and food and everything he needs. Why? Just so that he will be able to produce this particular product. But the moment that that product is no longer doable, then the funding will cut, there'll be no source of income, and therefore he'll need to move on to another project and all will be good. So now the analog. Oh, please, God, we've got to end on the positive. Oh, I'm praying. Don't worry. <laughs> please, God, uh, the idea will, will fly and uh, the returns will be uh, tenfold. Hashem should bless it.
Um, now they add a lot, the lesson. The lesson is that the reason God is financing planet Earth with more than hundreds of thousands of rand is because he has a project. What is that project? It's Torah and Mitzvahs. It's what, sorry? Torah, the study of Torah and the fulfillment of Mitzvahs. Which means that when God looks down at his project and he says, what am I looking to achieve? I'm looking to see a Jew be able to do a mitzvah and make this world a better place. To make this world into a home for God, which we'll speak about in the later chapters on a global level. And for that, he's pouring in billions of more than dollars of energy. So now, from God's perspective, to answer your question, is the world significant? It's his external will. He's creating the world because he wants something else to be achieved within this world. Our sages tell us that the first word of the Torah is Bereshit. We could have said Reshit. Rishon is number one. What's Bereshit? So it's translated often as in the beginning. God created the heaven and the earth, but some Chumashu you'll see will say in the beginning of God creating the heaven and earth, because that itself is discussion, but we're not doing Chumash now. But the sages tell us the word Bereshit base means two, and God created the world for two things, for the, 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 the Jewish people and the Torah. Which means that he has, an, he has a project, which is for us to be able to make this world a godly place through the fulfillment of mitzvahs and through the studying of Torah. And that's his inner will. So his external will is planet Earth and the millions of whales and seals and elephants and everything that exists within it. And his inner will is the f- performance of a mitzvah. So yeah, even from God's perspective, the world per se is insignificant. And the Tanya elaborates how since the world, since the, the mitzvah that we do is his inner will, so it means that God is very much involved, present, enclosed in that space, as opposed to something that is his, his, his external world. Therefore, when you look at the world, you don't see God. Why? Not just because he's hiding it from us, but actually because the world per se won't necessarily reflect what God is about, because it's only what we do with the world. But the world in its own right, without anything being done with it, doesn't reflect what God wants. So yeah, do we want to preserve the planet? For sure, so that we could do another mitzvah. But certainly you wouldn't want to lose the opportunity to do a mitzvah in order to preserve the planet, because then it's like you're taking away the products to, to get more financing. The more you have the product, the more financing you'll have. We'll wrap it up. There's a, there, there is a lot more, but to wrap it up, the Tanya Niles goes back and uh, he quotes from the Zohar, actually, I'll just mention one more concept, that the Torah mitzvahs, or the mitzvahs are referred to as God's limbs. God's limbs. If you say God has a body, it's heresy. What do you mean God's limbs? So the Tanya explains the Zohar, and it says that um, just as every limb expresses another ability of the neshama, every mitzvah expresses another part of Hashem. A mitzvah is a vehicle to express God's inner will. So this, these are, I guess, maybe the, the key concepts of chapter 23. That there's the inner will and there's the outer will. And the inner will 
is expressed through doing a mitzvah or through the study of Torah. Now we could wrap up what we discussed a few weeks ago, uh, the story of the giving of the Torah. And with that we'll conclude. When uh, God came to the Jewish people, Mount Sinai, and he, was, he, and he started telling them the Ten Commandments, they couldn't handle it. And after the first two commandments, they came to Moshe, they said to Moshe, Moshe, please, you intercede. God will tell you and you'll tell us. Because the energy, the Ghani energy that's coming is too much for us to handle. And Moshe told them the remaining eight commandments. And the next day he went up to get the tablets. And he brought them down and he broke them. And then he went back up and he davened. And uh, 80 days later, he got the second tablets on Yom Kippur. We're now in the first, right now, we are in the, from the first day of Elul until Yom Kippur, we're in that final 40 days where God was now giving a second set of tablets, which were a way of God saying that I understand you did wrong, but I forgive you and things will be good. That's the era that we're in right now. We tie it all together. But before we got to the physical copy, the hard copy, we first had the uh, uh, virtual copy where God actually said the Ten Commandments, but he only said two to the Jewish people. Moshe was upset that they weren't able to hear all ten from God himself, but that's what happened. Anyhow, Hasidus explains that the first two commandments actually encapsulated all ten commandments and all 613 commandments. Basically, the first two commandments encapsulated all. The first commandment is to believe that there's one God, and the second commandment is to believe that there's no other God. Okay? So now we sum up how the first commandment to believe that there's only one God encapsulates, encapsulates all the mitzvahs. Because we've gone on a journey from a uneducated perspective. One God means, I don't know exactly what it means, but maybe we discussed this, we opened it to the floor a few weeks ago. Maybe it means that there's, a, that, uh, there's no other God that you could pray to or there's no other power. But from a Hasidic perspective, we're developing this perspective once we've spoken about the world's insignificance, how God is the only reality. And yes, the world exists, but it's completely insignificant before him. And how do we bring out the oneness of God through a mitzvah? Because a mitzvah is God's inner will. So whenever we do a mitzvah, we express God's reality and the oneness of God. So that's why the first of the Ten Commandments, I am Hashem, your God, encapsulates all positive commandments. Because with every mitzvah that we do, we are developing a reality of one God. Next week, please, God. We'll speak about how through every sin, God forbid, we develop a reality of other gods. And then we'll wrap it up by saying, hey, we said that even the biggest sinner, when you asked him to say that there's another God or to go convert to another religion, suddenly that hidden love comes out. So if we realize how every mitzvah that we do really brings out the belief of one God, the reality of one God, and every sin that we do is, so to speak, serving other idols, then we'll be able to uncover this hidden love so that it becomes the objective, a motivation for us to do more mitzvahs. We said we're looking for motivation, and this is now not about creating a feeling, but it's revealing the natural feeling by changing our perspective. Please.